Yes, but I but I'd like the whole. I need the test back. I need to see your. So if you scan, if you as long as you can scan it and send it back, that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, or you can give them to me in class, or you can drop them off. And I did go ahead and do midterm grades without those, so it probably affected you a little bit. But I didn't realize I actually have till like Wednesday to put them in, or Wednesday or Thursday. But said it's only the midterm. If it was a final, I would be doing things a little differently. But. Besides, it's better to give you a little more stress and make sure that way, you know, instead of saying, oh, I've got, an, I've got an A easily, I don't have to worry about the rest of the class, and then it's a little easier to do it that way. So, but yes, if you want to email them to me, just, just make sure I get the whole exam, too, so I can see what you had. If I oh. oh, you can do that, too, and then email me the answers. That's fine, just so I have them both to compare. You can. Okay. All right, thank you. All right, and then... Okay, you can ignore the first one. That's not your quiz. That's the other class's quiz. So we do have a quiz on Friday on Chapter 10. We'll start Chapter 11, hopefully tomorrow. I don't think we'll get to start it today. I'm going to do a little review on the HR diagram, go over that in a little more detail today. But this one doesn't apply to you. You do have a Chapter 10 quiz in class on Friday. And then your homework that I gave you last time is also due, which should be all on these same chapter. It's all in the same chapter, so it's not on to chapter 11 will be the next homework. So this will only be there. And then quiz again, that is for you guys coming up following week, starting on Monday, will be the pictures. The pictures of the day from the last exam, when the last exam, we took the last quiz on them through today. So that means I can actually, if I do stop today, then I have this week to work on making it up so I don't have to you know, say through next Sunday and then I have to wait till Sunday in case I want to add a question on that. So the pictures for it will end today and then the last, starting tomorrow will be on the next, on the last of those quizzes. Homework five doesn't apply to you, you're on homework four. But second article review does, that is due. I know one or two people have already turned it in, but it's that's due the 28th. And exam three is sort of right, would be right down here, probably the 31st right now, probably Monday. Might do it Monday this time and see how that works. So, gives you the weekend to study or you still study Sunday night, right? I know, I know. So, actually sometimes I waited until Monday morning to study, so you know, I know how it works. Okay, but I'm looking at the exam probably being the very end of this month, probably the 31st, maybe the 2nd, depending on exactly where we go. But we still got to get two more exams in. I don't like to do too much after like Thanksgiving time, so I want to try to squeeze two in, even if the third one is going to be a little bit shorter. Oh, okay. Okay. So that's what's coming up. That's what's coming up. And I said, just so you're looking for the exam, probably by the end of the month, and I'm hoping it won't be any earlier than the 31st. I'll promise you that, but... I may have that, I will have that for you, I will have that for you then. Okay, picture of the day for today then. A bunch of galaxies. No stars in the picture that I could find actually. I looked, I didn't see any that actually looked like stars to me. They all looked like galaxies. So, something we'll be studying in a little bit. We've talk, we'll be talking about galaxies in a little more detail. This is actually a cluster of galaxies. So you see some interesting little roundish galaxies, a lot of those kind that are just, you know, rounded blobs. And you see a few that actually have some interesting little spiral structure to them. The little bit bluer one here actually looks like a little bit of a spiral disk. And there's another one up towards the top here. 
So a couple different types of galaxies. Now we'll go through those in detail later in the course. But what we're looking at here is not those, but all these interesting little wisps and things that we see. There's no galaxy that should look like that or like these lines. There's no galaxy that should look like those, but these do. And what we're seeing is, thanks to Einstein, or predicted by Einstein, I should say, by his general relativity that said that light gets bent by gravity just like mass. Mass moves according to gravity, well, so does the light. And what it means is that this big cluster of galaxies acts like a giant lens and bends the light of more distant galaxies behind it. So light coming from galaxies behind this cluster actually gets bent and turned around and we see it coming in these very interesting structures here, up here, there. And when you look at some of them, if you look, take a spectrum of them, you'll find out that some of them are not just similar, but some of these are actually multiple images of the identical galaxy. So like this galaxy here, this big stretched out one, and that little one up there, they look similar to me, but if I think if you took a spectrum of them, you'd probably find that they're exactly the same. They're actually different images of the same galaxy, just light that went off in one direction and got bent to us, and light that went off in another direction. The big thing that the picture is supposed to point out is not just these interesting ones, but these little thin ones. The little thin wisps that we're seeing couldn't be formed by the galaxies we see. You can go through the calculations, you know, how Einstein says light will bend, bend under gravity. And with the mass that you see here in all these galaxies, it should never form anything like that. It should not form any of these. But they're there, right? They did form, they're formed, so something else has to be, has to be happening. And one of the things that's come up in the last 20, 30 years is the idea of dark matter. So regular matter, normal matter is what we're used to every day. You know, it's what we have here on Earth. It's what we see when we look at the sky. We look at the sun, we look at the moon, you look at any of the galaxies, and you see what we call normal matter. So all these galaxies that we're seeing would be made up of that normal matter, but there's not enough mass there to cause the different kind of filaments that we see. So that means that there has to be more matter there that's dark. We don't see it. It's not just a little bit, though. In order to get what we see for each of those galaxies, you need between 10 and 100 galaxies worth of matter for each of those galaxies. So for this nice big galaxy here, in addition to that, there's got to be that amount of mass. That's a lot. It's billions of stars in there. That's a lot of matter. You've got to have 10 to 100 of those, that amount of matter scattered out there that we can't see. And that's one galaxy. You've got to do that for each of these. There's a lot of material that's dark, that we can't, that we do not see at all. And when I say it's dark, I don't mean it's just dark, oh, it's just real cold gas that we can't see. We could see that too. We could look at it in radio waves, and radio waves would be detectable. You would be able to detect that matter. Even when we look at all the matter that we can see across the electromagnetic spectrum, we're missing 10 to 100 times what we see. We're missing 10 to 100 times. So we're seeing a few percent of the matter in the universe. So when we look at things and all these, all these nice pictures I've shown you are all just a few, just a little tiny percent. It's usually about the normal matter is maybe 3 to 5 percent. Yes, sir? Could it be like, um, like, you know, gamma rays, you said the telescope shows other day. Mm-hmm. So the uh, interactions it has in the atmosphere. Okay. Could dark matter be like, um, like whatever light rays hit it, what we're seeing is the interaction. 
We, we're seeing the interaction of it gravitationally, but we don't see any other signs of interaction with it. With the, the gravitation that, that's bending it, it's bending that light around from a more distant one, and that it would. I would like to say the light's, I mean, it's going out that way. Mm -hmm. How's it going to bend and come back to us? What, like, what I'm saying is, there's something here that's dark matter that's passing through it, but it's capturing the photons or something. Okay. It's, it's redirecting the photons. So if you have some, some star, some galaxy, and you're looking here, you can't see it. But as those photons pass, they get bent. So where is it going to look like? So we're going to see a galaxy over here. And you might see a galaxy over there. So that's what we see, but we don't see this. This matter doesn't seem to interact with normal matter, anything else other than gravitationally. So it doesn't emit anything. It doesn't emit photons that we can detect. You know, whether it does something completely different that we can't detect, well, kind of hard to make a scientific theory if you can't test it. You've got to have something that you can test. But the only way we see it is through its gravity. And I say, we'll come back to this in a lot more detail later in the course, too. But that's essentially what you're seeing. You'll see it. It just works as a giant lens. It bends those light rays around it so they look like they're coming from different, different spots. And technically you can get it you know, three-dimensionally. You can get, to get it lined up perfectly, if you actually had a nice black hole and you had something directly lined up behind it, you'd actually get a ring. You'd actually get the whole galaxy from behind it would be in a ring around that source. If you had a perfect case, now of course that doesn't happen. You're not going to get things lined up perfectly. But if you were to, that would be the case. Okay. Questions? Other questions? No, no, no. Okay. Let's go look at the HR diagram a little bit then. And again, we've gone over the HR diagram. So I'm going to go over it in a little bit more detail here for you. And I, yeah, I put these up last week, so you should, you should have them. You should have had access to these slides. So what is the HR diagram? Well, we, it's, a, it's a graph, and we plot two things on it. We plot temperature, and we plot brightness. So in our nice big HR diagram here, we plot temperature on one axis, and we plot brightness on the other. For what we're going to study for stars, our next unit that we're starting right here is on the stars. We're going to talk about that. You're going to see probably more of these diagrams than you ever wanted to see. You know, one was enough, right? Okay, I get it. You're going to see, you're going to see, you know, tens of them. You know, many. You're going to see them every other slide as I come up. You're going to see different different diagrams. You'll see them throughout the textbook, and even when we get into galaxies, they'll come back. You'll see them in some of the galaxy pictures. So they'll come back. But it is a very basic tool that we use to study the stars. It gives us a lot of information. We can learn a lot about a star by finding out where it, where it falls on the HR diagram. So by only knowing two things about it, its temperature and its brightness, we can learn a lot about the stars. We can talk about how they evolve. How do stars change over time? I mean, sun doesn't look like it ever changes. And for our lifespan, it doesn't, right? You know, over the course of the human lifespan, you know, less than 100 years, the sun never cha barely changes. Rises and sets, that's about it. But it doesn't change. But if you go over, you know, cosmic scales and talk about many 
billions of years, well, the sun will come and will go and will, cha and will change. It will change in brightness and it will change, it'll change in brightness, it'll change in temperature and its location on this diagram will actually move. Now for our lifetime, it's staying right where it is, it's not going to go any place in a hundred years or in a thousand years or in a million years. You know, for the last five billion it's been about right where it is and it's going to stay there for another five billion. But beyond that, it will change. You know, ten billion years from now the sun will be gone. It'll have gone through another stage, a couple other stages and be down in that little white dwarf region we looked at last time. And then ending up with that, you know, where do the stars end up when they die? What's left over? So what we plot on them. On the horizontal axis, we plot the temperature and temperature increases just to keep it confusing, temperature increases towards the left. Right? I know we love that. Got to do it backwards. So the of course you're putting the hot stars on the left side and the cool stars on the right side. But if you're talking numerically, the, small, the bigger numbers are going to be on the left hand side. Smaller numbers are going to be on the right hand side. You can also plot spectral class OBAFGKM the astronomer's alphabet. Again, temperature, it's, it's the same direction. Temperature has increased, gone, is, when spectral classes, the O's are the hottest, you plot the O stars here. M are the coolest, you plot the M stars down here. And you can plot something else. And it depends on what kind of, it depends on what astronomer is doing it, what they plot. They're all related. I mean, there's no reason you couldn't plot the spectral class or the temperature. Or the color index is the other one that I'm going to talk about. They all tell you the same information. A specific spectral class has a specific temperature, has a specific color index. So they're all related. But it depends on who's doing, who's doing, the, thing, doing the plot. If it is someone who's doing an HR diagram based on their theory, they're doing a computer model. Well, probably what's naturally going to come out of their computer model is not going to be the spectral class of the star. Computer models are going to come up with numbers. It's probably going to have the temperature of that star. So if it was doing a, if a th theoretical astronomer was doing some model based on how he predicted stars were going to be, he would probably plot the temperatures. If someone was doing an HR diagram based on what they saw, they were making observations of the stars, they would probably use one of these too spectral classes if they had if they were classifying the stars or they might do the color index. The color index again I'll come up to on the next slide here and tell you a little bit more about that. But that's another way of actually measuring the temperature. So all three of them are measuring the temperature of the star. It's just different ways of getting it. The temperature itself is indirect. You don't just look at a star and I can tell you it's hot or cold based on what it looks like. If it looks blue or red I can give you an idea of the temperature. But I can't just look at it and say, oh, it's 13,286.5 degrees. I can make measurements to try to get that, but those are the natural things that you'd actually plot. There we go. So what is the color index? We use two different filters. We look at the brightness of the star in two different filters. 
So you get two different magnitudes. We get the B magnitude, or blue, when we look at the star through a filter that lets through blue light. And you get the V, or visual magnitude, which you get when you let through a yellowish green light. And what you can do is if you get these two magnitudes, or any two bands, if you take any two specific ones, you can get a measurement of the temperature. You just subtract the two magnitudes. How they two compare, is the star brighter in the blue? If it's brighter in the blue one, then that means it's a hotter star. If it's brighter in the visual magnitude, then it's a cooler star. The sun's color index is .656, just for your reference. I'm not going to test you on the, sun's, the, number of the, the number of color index for the sun. But it's positive, it's .656. That means a redder star. Anything that's positive is a red star. Maybe going up to about two being a very red star. So those are the cool stars. That means that the visual magnitude is brighter. So if B minus V is positive, it means it's a cool star. So we take the blue magnitude, subtract the visual magnitude. The only thing you've got to watch there, and I'm not, again, I'm not making you do these calculations. I just want you to have been introduced to it. But what, that, this is where people can get confused on it. Because when it's positive, that means that the blue number is bigger than the visual number, which means that the blue number is fainter. So you've got to remember, that's backwards. Again, I'm not testing you on doing through the calculations. I want you to have seen it because sometimes you'll see an HR diagram that I put up that will use this. So if it's positive, and I do want you to know that. Know that a positive one is a cool star and a negative one is a hot star. That I do want you to know. But I'm not going to make you go through and calculate, give you the numbers and try to, try to trick you on that or anything. So if it's positive, that means that the blue magnitude was bigger numerically so the blue magnitude might have been 5, the visual magnitude might have been 4, and that equals a plus 5 minus 4 plus 1. But it's just keeping track that you've got to remember through your head that, wait a second, those big numbers, when we're talking about a big number in magnitudes, it means it's fainter. So the bigger this difference gets, the fainter the blue is getting compared to the visual, the bigger this number gets, Blue is getting much, much fainter compared to the visual, and you're ending up with a very red star. So that's the point I want you to know out of it. Very red stars are plus two, maybe, way down at the very end of the main sequence. A very negative index, minus 0.5, would be very blue, very far to this side. So color index actually goes that way, right? A very small color index would be a very blue star, negative. 
very red stars. So, so it actually increases the right direction. It's only temperature that goes backwards. Yes, sir? If you get Yes. You can get negative. You can get negative for but one, both, or neither. I mean it could be the magnitude could be if you're doing up absolute magnitudes, yeah, you'd get some of them that would be. Some of the big bright stars would be significantly negative. But so that makes it even more. But again, I'm looking for you to do those. You can do the calculations if you like, you know. You might like them, some of them might <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Save that for the advanced astronomy, you know, the advanced class. Okay. But that's what we use. The cuts the color in. And that's where the sun falls. So the sun falls in the reddish, slightly towards the reddish portion. Now on the other one, we have the brightness. Okay? And when I said brightness, it really should be not just how bright it is when you go out there and look at it in the sky, because that doesn't tell you anything. If it's just so bright when we look at the sky, well then the sun is the brightest star in the universe. We have to take into the distance to account or we need what we call the intrinsic intrinsic brightness. And we use a couple different things for that. We can use, you can plot luminosity. That goes well with the temperature because luminosity is just how much energy. It's the sort of thing you'd calculate in an equation. If you're using the equations to calculate the structure of a star, that's what would come out naturally. Or you can plot the absolute magnitude. The absolute magnitude is what you'd measure in the sky for the true brightness of the star. And in very special cases, sometimes you can use the apparent magnitude. Not in general. Can't just plot the apparent magnitude. As I said, you don't know anything about the distance. But there are stars where you know their distance. You know about their distances. Even if you don't know their exact distance, you know their relative distances to each other. And that would be stars in a cluster. So if you have a group of stars, you have a cluster of stars with thousands of stars in it, well, then I could actually plot the apparent magnitudes because they're all the same distance away from us. Not exactly, right? They're, some are a little closer, some are a little further away. But, you know, if I take a couple steps east, I'm a little bit closer to New York, but does it really matter? You know, the same thing with the stars. Yeah, there's some stars that are light years closer than others in a cluster, but if that cluster is a thousand light years away, and you're talking about a light year, a couple light years, it's nothing. Or 10,000 light years away, you're talking about very, very small differences. So really all the stars in the cluster are for our purposes the same distance away. So if they're in a cluster, you can do that. I couldn't just plot apparent magnitudes for the whole group of stars in the sky. Because some of those stars might be 5 light years away, 10 light years away. Some of them might be 500 light years or 1,000 light years away. So there'd be a big difference in the distances. So that's what, you, that's what we can plot. You plot temperature on one axis. Temperature, spectral class, color index are the three examples. And you plot brightness, intrinsic brightness, luminosity or absolute magnitude primarily. In some cases with clusters you can plot the apparent magnitude. So what do we get? Come on. There we go. So here's a couple examples of what we get. 
and you probably look, we looked at some of these last time, you end up with a main sequence which is about 90% of the stars. So there's most of the stars. There's the red giants, which usually are up here somewhere. Red, oh, trying to go ahead. How about red? Red giant stars. That was what, about 9%? And there's some super giants that are in here as well. And then the other ones we looked at were the white dwarfs. So the other ones are the white dwarfs. Now again, like I told you the last time, yes there are a couple other classes. There are the subgiants and there's some bright giant, there's a few other things. But for most of what we talk about, the main sequence, the giants, the supergiants, and the white dwarfs take care of just about, if white dwarfs are about 1%, there's 100% of the stars already. So yeah, rounding errors, there's a, few, there's a few scattered stars around, but most everything we see falls into one of these, one of these classes. And as we put them together, you're starting to see a couple other things you see, and the diagram here on the screen, shows the size of the stars. So stars on the main sequence are just about the size of the sun. So most of these ones right in the middle here, around the sun, put our sun in there someplace. They're all about the same size. Even the ones that are a little bit cooler, a little bit hotter, they're pretty close to the size of the sun. When you get down here, they drop off quite a bit, and when you get up, they start to get a lot bigger. But the main sequence stars don't vary that much. They might be a tenth the size of the sun. They might be ten times the size of the sun. But they're not those big monster stars. They're not those big gigantic ones. You know, we looked at what? Antares. And said that it was the, that it would fit, cover the orbit of Mars. So if you put it in the solar system, it would go out to the orbit of Mars. That's not the, that's not the main sequence stars. The main sequence stars are all really about the same size. They change, they vary in temperature quite a bit, but they don't vary in size. The sizes change when you go up here to the red giant region. The further you get up to this corner, the bigger the stars get. So you start to get things that are ten times the size of the sun. Well, that's like some of the main sequence ones. But you get some that are a hundred times, a thousand times. So you can get some that are much bigger. So your very biggest stars, are up in this upper corner. The very biggest stars are up in that upper corner. So if you're looking for the biggest stars on the HR diagram, they're way up in this corner. And your teeny tiniest stars would be way down here. There's the white dwarfs. Stars the size of the Earth. Or dead cores of stars that are the size of the Earth. So. Again, I'm giving you, I can give you an idea of the size of the star. That doesn't give me an exact number. But if you can get these two things we can measure, right? We measure the spectral class, the color index, or the temperature, all related. And we measure the brightness. And we find out where it lies on the HR diagram. You can immediately tell something about the size of the star. 
If it lands close to the main sequence, we know it's roughly the size of the sun. If it lands up in the red giant, we, know, we can know that it's 10 or 100 or more times bigger than the sun. And if we falls down here, it's much, much smaller than the sun. So again, we didn't measure anything about the size. We can determine that once we've found our HR diagram, any star I plot on there, I can tell you something about its size. But as you said, like some of these, I told you, some of these will plot depending on who does it. Here, for example, is a plot HR diagram with temperature increasing that way, luminosity increasing this way. Now here's one with absolute magnitude and the color index. So very big numbers, very cool stars, very small numbers, very hot stars. So I said you'll see those switched around and used, used interchangeably, but they're all measuring the same thing. So as I said, we're learning about the diameter. We can also learn something about the mass. Remember, I think our last, is it the last slide from last, from last time showed the mass? We were talking about the masses of the stars or a couple slides back where it said where you fell around the main sequence depended on the mass. So it doesn't help us as much up here or down here necessarily, but if it's on the main sequence, I can tell you how, about how massive it is just by where it happens to lie. The ones up here might be 20 to 50 times the mass of the sun, very big stars. The ones down here might be a tenth to a hundredth the mass of the sun, the very, 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 very small faint stars. So just by learning this other information, we can get an idea. Again, I told you the only ones we can get mass directly from is the ones that are a binary star. So if they're not in a binary star system, I can't really tell you anything about the mass. I can't really tell you directly about the mass. But once we found out that a typical star like Sirius is so many times more massive than the sun, if I find another star that's like Sirius, well, what's my good guess? It's probably about, you know, if that's three times more massive than the sun, then this star is probably about three times more massive than the sun. It's not a direct measurement. It's inferred based on the measurements you've made previously. So in order to actually get an accurate mass, you've got to have it orbit. You've got to have something orbiting it. But you can get a pretty good idea just from where it falls on the main sequence once you learn the masses of enough stars to say that stars of one solar mass are about here and stars of half a solar mass are here and a tenth of it. You can get a pretty good idea of what each one means. Okay. Now, when I said we could use the apparent magnitude on a star cluster, Again, I already, I already could have sort of did this for you. You know, if I take a couple steps towards the east, I'm closer to New York. But I'm not getting there any faster. I'm still not, you know, theoretically, yes, some of you are closer to, you know, the other, closer to New York than me, right? Unless I'm facing east, because I'm, no, I'm turned around in here, so I have no clue. But, you know, pick a city. Some, somebody's closer to another city than me, right? But does it really matter? If we're traveling there, is it going to go, you're going to get there any faster? No. Same thing for stars in a cluster. They might be, you know, within light years of each other, but when you're talking about a cluster that's 10,000 light years away, 20,000 light years away, 30,000, we're still within our galaxy easily. You know, a lot of these clusters could be 10, 20, 30,000 light years away, and if you're talking a light year or two, they're the same distance away. You're not going to be able to measure the distance that accurately to say that one light year is going to make any difference. You know, if you determine it to be 15,000 light years plus or minus 100, well, a couple light years doesn't make any difference. But we can use it. We can use this knowledge to kind of work backwards. We can use the apparent magnitude 
And if we can find the H, we can make a plot of that cluster, we can make an HR diagram of that cluster and find out its main sequence, then we can actually determine the distance to the cluster. So we can actually work ourselves backwards and find the distance to the cluster. And if you've looked at your homework, that equation probably looks familiar, right? You hate me already, I know. But we can use, there's an equation that we can use that says little m minus big M, not masses, magnitudes in this case. This is the apparent magnitude, how bright it appears to be, minus the absolute magnitude, how bright it really is, is equal to 5, the base 10 logarithm of the distance minus 5. And I think I gave you a question. I think there's a question that involves that if I kept copies of homework here. Maybe not. Okay. But I gave you some, some things to look at with that. So if we looked at it for, and you can, you, can work it, you can work it backwards and you can find the distance. So if you example had a star whose apparent magnitude was zero, so a bright star, really bright star in the sky, right? So if we had a star whose apparent magnitude was zero and its absolute magnitude was zero, so it's actually as bright intrinsically as it appears on the sky. Possible. There are, there's a handful of stars that are at the right distance. Then we can figure out how far away this star is. Zero minus zero, give you a, give a nice easy one, right? Zero minus zero is zero. And I'll take it in steps here. Add five to both sides. Divide both sides by five. Now you've got to get rid of that log. To get rid of the, lo the logarithm, that's the, if you have a scientific calculator, it's usually that little, probably a little 10 to the x power or an inverse log or a second function log. Just make sure there's a log and there's usually an ln natural logarithmic function. It's the one that says log. So you do that. Well, 10 to the first power is how you'd get rid of this and you'd end up with distance is 10 and the unit is parsecs. The way the equation is set up, the distances come out in parsecs, which are about three, point, three and a quarter light years. So the distance would be 10 parsecs or about 32.6 light years. And that's the examples. There's, a, there's another one you're going to go through. It won't come out quite as easy. I tried to do the real easy example for you there. But just to work you through, same steps. And you should be able to get a distance. 10 parsecs is what we call the standard distance in astronomy. That's where everything is measured from. Can you see it okay? Okay. 10, 10 parsecs is, the is what we consider the standard distance. So if a star is exactly 10 parsecs away, its absolute magnitude and its apparent magnitude are the same. So they could both be 0. They could both be 5. They could both be 30. It doesn't matter what they are. But if they're exactly the same, no matter what they are, because if it's, if it's 
apparent magnitude was 30, extremely faint, and its absolute magnitude was 30, well, you still got 30 minus 30, you still got 0. The rest of the calculation doesn't change. Only way it's going to change is if they're different. Okay. So this is the method that we call, you can call spectroscopic parallax. You deter, use the HR diagram to determine the distances. It's not a direct measure of the distance. Now it's not like parallax we're actually measuring. Yes? I guess the very last part. Okay, which part did you lose? Here. You got to here? Yep. Okay. Then this is that 10 to, the, to get rid of the log. You have to invert it and it's usually an inverse log key on your calculator or 10 raised 10 to the power. So if we raise 10 to the log of d, all you get left is d. Okay. And if you do 10, then you do 10 to the 1, which is 10. If it was a 2, you'd have 10 squared or 100. Okay? Now, let me see. What did I do? I'm trying to remember if I did. No. Okay. Did I? Give me one second here. No. Okay. I wanted one other thing I wanted to do. So let me go back here to slides. Couldn't remember if I'd put that up there. Okay. So this, this m minus m, let's see, let me clear some of this. We did color index already. Leave your HR diagram up for you. Okay, so this m minus m, little m minus big M, is call, also called the distance modulus. So if we know those two numbers, that difference can actually tell us the distance to the star. So we had if m and m are equal, little m equals big M, then the distance is 10 parsecs. If little m, here's where the fun part with magnitude comes in, is larger, So if little m is larger than big M, this is how bright it should be, and it's going to be fainter than it should be, right? So it looks fainter than we would expect it to. So what does that mean? If it looks fainter, then is it closer to us than 10 parsecs or further away? Further away. So it's more than 10 parsecs away. So it is further away than 10 parsecs. And again, it's not always the way you think because those magnitudes are backwards. The, big number the bigger number here means that it looks a lot fainter. It should be so bright, but it looks a lot fainter. It's got to be further away. Should be this bright, but it looks a lot fainter it's got to be further away than 10 parsecs. The amount of that change is what you go through in the calculation which will actually give you the distances. And you get the opposite if it's the other way. What if M is smaller than big M? Well then it looks brighter. It should be so bright but it's got a smaller number, smaller magnitude means a brighter star. So now it's going to be closer, less than 10 parsecs.
And as you can imagine with what we've talked about, there's a lot more of these stars than there are of these. There's only a handful of stars within 10 parsecs. There aren't that many. So the idea here for the distances is just to know what, look at these two and you can tell me relative distances. In terms of a quiz or something, that's what I'd ask you. In terms of the homework, I make you go through and calculate it. So you, again, you won't get that on the quiz or the exam, yay. But you may get something that says, you know, a star appears this magnitude and appears, is it, you know, is it further away than this or is it closer? And I always use the reference as 10 when they're equal. So I'll always use that for you. Okay. And then as we look at those star clusters, when we actually plot them, there's actually two different types of star clusters we find. There's globular clusters on the left, nice big glob of stars, proper, appropriately named. So a nice big glob of stars here, that's a globular star cluster. And you get a very interesting HR diagram. When you take all of these stars, okay, and you measure their spectral class or their temperature or their color index and you measure their brightnesses and you plot them, you get a nice main sequence star, nice set of main sequence stars. You get a red giant branch, you get another one called a horizontal branch and you get a lot of white dwarfs. So you get a very interesting HR diagram. Now in the two chapters from now, not this next chapter, but the following one, we'll talk about how this, what this means as to how these stars are how the stars are changing and how stars have moved around. Because what you see is that main sequence used to go all the way up here. Well, there aren't. There's a few stars up there, but they're not on that main sequence. They're kind of, that whole section's empty. Where did they go? Those are those stars that didn't live very long. They're all gone. When we look at an open cluster on the other side, this is actually a double open cluster. You've got one open cluster and another open cluster really close together and you do the same thing. So I measure, get a measure of the temperature, get a measure of the brightness and plot them. And what do we find? It doesn't look the same as the other one, right? You see main sequence stars going almost all the way up to the top. Few red giant stars, no white dwarf stars, not even very many lower main sequence stars. So two different types of clusters, we see two different, two different things. And again, we'll come back when we talk about stellar evolution, chapter 12, we'll go through that in a little bit more, a little bit more detail. So what do we get? And I say I'm going to go over a summary of it here, but what do we learn from the HR diagram? A star as it goes through its life will change position. I, I say moves on there, moves probably isn't the best word. The stars don't, aren't physically moving in space or anything. Their location is ch on the HR diagram is changing as their temperature and their brightness change. So a star starts out way over here someplace, which we call a protostar. So that's where a star is born. It first appears on the HR diagram here, very, very cool temperature and some brightness. But it's buried and hidden and hard to see. So it's born towards the upper right. It's very big. And then it will slowly contract and get smaller and hotter. So it's getting hotter 
It's getting smaller because it's going down diagonally. And it's getting a little fainter overall. And it attracts towards the main sequence. So, sun starts out there, ends up here, spends 10 billion years there. You'll find when we do stellar evolution that the section of the main sequence, we've already covered it. I already talked to you about the sun. So you get to the main sequence life, you stop here, okay, star formed. Ten billion years later, we'll jump. Because nothing happens to it here. It's going to sit there for ten billion years. The interesting stuff is coming up later. Then as it changes, after ten billion years, the sun starts moving again and it will actually go up towards the red giant branch. So the sun will become one of those red giants. It'll actually be one of those big stars. It'll go towards the upper right. It'll do some things around here. It'll move around a little bit as its brightness and temperature change. And then it finally ends up down as a white dwarf. What are we doing? Okay. Come on. Wrong button. Helps if I push the right side. So here's an example of what might happen to the sun. Okay. I skipped the first part. I showed you that on the board. It starts way off over here. Yeah, technically way, way off over here. It's really big and really cold. It condenses down to the main sequence. Sits there. Stage 7 is boring. It just sits there for 10 billion years. Then it will get, as it runs out of fuel, it starts to get bigger and bigger. And the sun will eventually become 100 times the size it is now. At this point, here it's using hydrogen. We talked about this, how the sun made its energy with hydrogen, burning hydrogen to helium. Well, that's what it does. It's, it's used up all its hydrogen after the end of stage seven, and it has no fuel source. So its interior just collapses down, and its outer layers get puffed out. So it becomes a very, very big star, and all of a sudden at stage nine, it gets hot enough that it finds a new energy source. So at stage nine, it gets a new energy source. That's sort of a shock to it. It jumps back down, so it shrinks drastically from 100 to maybe 20 or 20, 25 times the size of the sun, so it'll shrink back down. And it will sit there on this little horizontal branch and burn hydrogen, or burn helium for a little bit. That's the next element up. It burned hydrogen first, then it's going to burn helium. Once that's used up, and that doesn't last near as long, it starts to grow again, gets to be an even bigger star, it might be 200 times the size it is right now. It will get big enough to swallow the earth eventually, will be gone. But you got 5 billion years plus. Then eventually what happens, in a very quick succession, it pushes out. Its outer layers get pushed out into space. And its core starts to cool off. So the core becomes a white dwarf. And the outer layers become what we call a planetary nebula. And again, that we're going to go through in more detail. And let me see. I'm not going to have time to do that. I'll come back to that one on Wednesday. But what we find as we go through here, in, that in terms of what we call stellar evolution, as the stars change, the more massive stars evolve faster. And the low mass stars evolve slower. And we saw that in that graph. Right? When we looked at this globular cluster, all those higher mass stars, remember the main sequence was low mass to high mass. They're all gone. So they're all gone. Where'd they go? Well, some of them are populating over here. Some of them are long since dead and gone and dead and getting gone and buried. Next. 
Next. Next. Okay. The low mass stars evolve more slowly. So a massive star might take 10 or 15 million years to go through its life, to go through forming, burning hydrogen, going red giant, and well, the real massive ones blowing up. So they may only take 10 million years. Low mass stars like the sun might take 10 billion years. The really, really low mass stars way down here, those are the ones you'd love to, you'd love to live on a planet around those. You might get a trillion years. You know, long, any star like this that's ever formed is still around. You could have trillions of years. A star like the sun is going to end up in this corner down in the white dwarf at the end. So eventually we'll have a little compact core there at the center. Now that was just a brief overview. I'm going to go through, we have a whole chapter on stellar evolution that I'm going through. I'll give you a brief overview here and I have a little animation that I can show but I figured by the time I tried to get it up and running it would be, class would be over at this point. So I'll finish up there. We're just about done with this section. I said it's just a little overview, go through a little bit more detail on the HR diagram. So questions? Questions? All right, I will see everybody on Wednesday then.